Welcome to Gigami. Today's guest is Ian Anderson, the driving force behind rock band Jethro Tull. Ian formed Jethro Tull in 1967, and this year, 55 years on, they released their 22nd studio album, The Zealot Game, which hit the top 10 in the UK and beyond. Ian has always stood out. His instrument of choice is the flute, which he's in the habit of playing while standing on one leg. Jethro Tull have had huge success with multiple gold and platinum albums that have topped the charts on both sides of the Atlantic. They appeared on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus and alongside Jimi Hendrix at the legendary 1970 Isle of Wight Festival. Ian feared his career as a professional musician might be a brief one and so set out to learn exactly how the music industry works to give himself the option of moving into a role in a record company or as a producer should the paying gigs dry up. They never did, but he has used that knowledge to sustain his career over the decades and it has allowed him to become increasingly self-sufficient. These days, Ian manages himself, manages the release and distribution of his records and even manages the day-to-day logistics of his tours. There is not much Ian does not know about the life of a gigging musician and the business of music. First of all, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Could we start with what, what music was playing in your house when you were growing up? Well, there wasn't music playing. I mean, we had a we had a, a an old-fashioned seventy-eight RPM radiogram of wartime vintage, um, but it was never used unless it was for playing maybe something on the radio. But as far as I know, my parents never listened to music. My my father had done at some point because he had a few seventy-eight RPM big band jazz albums of wartime era. And when I was old enough to be allowed to uh, play those records, when I was, say, seven or eight years old, then I, that, that's what I listened to. But I'm not aware that he ever listened to them. I think the records just sat in a drawer somewhere and were never, never played. So music was absolutely not a part of our family um, domestic environment at all. And where were you living at this point? Uh, well, I was born in... In Dunfermline, I was living in Edinburgh when I was in my pre-teens, and then in my early teens, my parents decided, uh, God help us all, to move to Blackpool, which is where I passed through puberty as quickly as possible. <laughs> um, and, and how did you start playing music? I think it was because it was something I was aware of, and it, since it wasn't a part of our household, it seemed like a, a seductive. Um, we did actually have, come to think of it, there was in a room in, in, in our house in Edinburgh, there was a piano. And um, I think I had a very ageing grandmother who came to live with us for a short period of time before she died. And she tried to get me to play some simple things on the piano. And I think I subsequently then I, an aunt on the same side of the family, my father's side, also tried to give me some little grounding in some elementary piano things but i i didn't really take to the piano partly because it sounded awful i mean obviously out of tune and it just was a clanging awful noise close second to the caribbean steel drum in terms of the assault <laughs> upon the eardrum and um it wasn't until i spied in one of the sunday tabloids in scotland um probably the sunday post uh an advertisement for a an Elvis Presley ukulele and it cost 22 and sixpence and it looked like the company by a picture of Elvis you know a drawing mm. of Elvis playing what appeared to be a full-size guitar and uh, of course this thing came through the post and it was about 12 inches long and um, and didn't stay in tune for two minutes but it it was an instrument and I could play a few chords and it um, whetted my appetite only to the extent of requesting as a birthday or Christmas present uh, a real guitar. My father acquired for five pounds uh, a Spanish guitar, nylon strung Spanish guitar. And I attempted to string that with steel strings. Again, it was out of tune, horrible action. Uh, I didn't have a how to play in a day book. So I was um, you know, really just strumming the open strings. And along with a couple of friends, I guess by this time I was 11 years old, we had a, a notional skiffle group and we banged away at washboard and guitar, um, tuneless um, renditions <laughs> of whatever was the flavour of the time, probably Lonnie Donegan and uh, early bluegrass-oriented skiffle. 
Um, I did then manage to figure out a couple of chords. And uh, at some point, I must have got a, a book or something. And then, you know, in my early teens, I did learn to play a few chords, probably when I was about 15 years old, and, uh, and got a slightly better guitar. And um, by the time I was 17, then, then there was the beginnings of, a, of what became ultimately Jethro Tull, um, in the sense of a, a band of a couple of school friends and, and I um, playing drums, bass and guitar. And then um, that evolved into uh, something that was a bit more j jazz and blues oriented in the uh, around 66, um, 67. And then that's when uh, the attempt to be professional musicians dissolved after about a month of living in Luton. Some of the guys had already decided that they didn't want to do that. And... Um, and a couple of us went down to Luton uh, to work with a guitarist called Mick Abrahams and Clive Bunker, his drummer buddy. And out of out of that, Jethro Tull was born in January of 1968. Yeah. What 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 sort of point was it that you you thought you might have a go at making a living from this? Was it was it something that you always wanted to do? Was it was it your your sort of burning? Well, no. I'd, I'd my my like most little children growing up. I you know went through the phases of wanting to be an engine driver, wanting to be a, you know, join the army, be a fighter pilot, or, you know, all of those exotic, glamorous things. But um, in my childhood, I think I realized that was daydreaming and I was not really brave enough to want to go and die on the fields of battle. And um, I don't have a head for height, so I don't think I would have been a very good fighter pilot. And I also have a sensitive skin i can't wear woolen or rough clothing so that you ruled out the uniform not only of the the military services but also the police force which i attempted to join as a as a police cadet when i was um 17 years old just 17 or maybe 16 and um and luckily they turned me down because i had too many o levels and i couldn't wear the uniform so uh, <laughs> that left me with journalism as a potential career but i offered to go and make the tea at the blackpool evening gazette and they said we don't have any tea boy vacancies at this time and um so that ruled out the police journalism and i then decided to go to art school to uh, learn to be a musician which is what many of my peers ended up doing although perhaps like me at the time thinking you know we'll go and learn to study fine art but in reality, we all got bitten by the music bug, and uh, that was a much more immediate way of releasing creative juices uh, without getting anybody pregnant. Was there some point the penny dropped? You thought, I could make a go of this. I could actually make a living from it. I think the um, possibly when I was just about 18, I think, then I think I made that decision that uh, art school was, um, you know, I was never going to, yeah, we'd have ended up being a, you know, at best, I'd probably be a teacher in some secondary school or mm. something. I, I really realised it was going to be very difficult to make a living out of painting and drawing, um, and I wasn't interested in commercial art, you know, in graphics and design um, any more than I am now, although it's part of what I have to do for a living. So um, I think I think music seemed like it was worth a go for a couple of years on the grounds that I could always go back to college or get a job in a shoe shop in Blackpool if I had to, you know, mm. make a living doing something dreary. Then um, there were other options, but I thought I'll give it, I'll give it a couple of years. And uh, luckily, after a couple of years, we were uh, doing quite well. And although I thought it would be unlikely that there would be a long-term career, um, just because that was the nature of the times, you know, everybody, you know, the world was full of one hit wonders then as it is now. And the chances of it going on for more than five decades <laughs> did not really enter my mind. Uh, I thought that probably I would either end up working at a record company or, or being a, a producer. 
if I wanted to be in the slightly more creative side of things, then that, that, those were the options I thought probably would unfold during my 20s. But uh, as, as things turned out, although I used that period of growing musical success to try and learn as much as I could about the business, about record companies, marketing, promotion, distribution, record deals, the legal side of things, um, both in uh, recording and, and touring, I, I was prepared to have to earn my living outside or off the stage. But as it, as it turned out, I was um, lucky to enjoy 51 years of performing on stage until, until February of 2020, when it all came to a, a, a sudden stop. Were you always pretty comfortable with the business side of things, or is that something that you've, you've grown into? Well, as I said, I, I spent my first couple of years trying to learn other people's jobs. And, you know, Terry Ellis and Chris Wright, who uh, uh, were our agents initially, and then um, in 69 formed the Chrysalis label um, with, you know, really a full service deal with Island Records in the UK and, uh, and with um, Reprise Records in the USA. Um, it was just basically a, a label with a butterfly. But from that moment on, I was trying to learn what they were learning, you know, and um, maybe they learned some things from me too. But, you know, I certainly was trying alongside them to learn to understand the business because we were all rookies, you know. They'd come out of university having not studied music or business management or anything or accountancy or anything that might remotely um, qualify them to run a record company. And, you know, I too never went to music college and to this day don't read and write music. So, you know, we're self-taught. And to some extent, it was a, a useful experience learning about this alongside two other guys who were every, 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 every day they went to the office and learned something new, which I'm sure they would readily uh, testify to. And do, do, you, do you work with a team of people now or are you very much self-sufficient? Uh, I suppose during the, during the years, it has dropped away from... <clears throat> having full-time employees to having uh, part-time employees under contract for, for, for specific tours. Um, but, you know, for the last, I don't know, many years, I've worked with the same, uh, well, nearly all the same musicians. And uh, in terms of crew, I guess for 20 years or more, I've sat the same front of house sound guy, um, certainly 12, maybe 15 years, same production manager. and. Um, and my son, when he left university, you know, did every every job on 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 tour. You know, started off as being a drum roadie and worked up to being stage manager and then front of house lights lighting operator. And then when uh, our old agent Kenny Bell stepped down, um, I suggested to James that he become our agent for everywhere except North America, where I already you know had a an arrangement in place so um you know he's done all the jobs and and he works with me predominantly that's his main line of activity but uh, like everybody else who works with me they've been forced into finding other ways to make a living and and to some extent that's what he's had to do too but um it's, what about it's basically basically two of us and uh, a dedicated office with somebody who comes in at the moment um on furlough just just works from home most of the time and comes into the office one day a week. And um, that's, in, in essence, the nucleus of it. But um, it's a long time since I had a travel agent. I don't think I've had a manager since 1974. Um, and, um, you? Do you publish and yourself? Course, I write the music and I'm the record producer. So I'm kind of self-sufficient. It's, uh, it's easier. I don't have to talk to people too much. Do, do you, do you um, self-publish and, um, or do you, you tell? Well, um, one of the things, you see, we hear all these bad stories about, about uh, the relationship of artists with record companies and managers and so on. And I have to say that in my experience, I have only ever felt that I was treated very fairly by our managers uh, and by record companies. I, I, I have no complaints at all. I think they've all been... Essentially, you know, been at the odd hiccup here and there, of course. But you know, I think I've never, I don't, I will not be taking to the grave with me some of the the bitterness that seems to exist with a lot of my contemporaries who just filled with um, 
hatred and loathing for being, you know, ripped off. And maybe they were, or maybe they just weren't paying attention and it kind of happened under their noses. And they're now embittered about it, probably because they feel rightfully humiliated and embarrassed by the fact they didn't understand what was going on. But um, I, 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 on the contrary, I have no bad stories to tell. I think I've been... I, less than the fingers of one hand will count the number of times I've not been paid for performing a concert. Wow. And, and out of, you know, I guess it's around 5,000 shows over a period of 50 years that um, it's happened. You know, like the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970. We, we didn't get, we knew we weren't going to get paid before we even flew out there, let alone walked on the stage. We, we knew we were not going to get paid. It was a complete disaster. But of course, we went on and did the show. And it's happened to me, I think, twice, once, once in America, twice in Europe, and once in the UK. Um, but... Uh, I think on at least two of those occasions, I have to feel a little sympathy for the promoters because they probably did their best. They made mistakes, but they did their best and unfortunately were precipitated into a, an enormous economic catastrophe. And um, I have to feel, try to feel sorry for them because, you know, I didn't have to sell my house. I've still got money in the bank. And, and some of these guys, you know, I mean, one guy in a Norwegian promoter who had, had booked the Riders of the Storm, the kind of working title of the, the Doors without um, Jim Morrison. And uh, these guys basically bankrupted him because at the last minute they refused to come unless they all got uh, business class flights for their road crew and their entourage and, and, uh, and had 100% of the money up front and, you know, various demands that their agent made on their behalf. But I mean, I'm afraid I... I think the buck stops with the performers, and and this poor Norwegian promoter. I mean, again, we knew that he, we knew he was stuffed. We we, we turned up and said, look, we'll try and help you out here, but um, you know, we we know that you have some money, and we know that you can afford to pay us at least something to offset our our costs of being here. And um, and I, I finally, a year or so later, I, I gave a you know written sworn testimony in a Los Angeles court. And he won against, oh, these against the riders of the school. You know, yeah. so I mean, it's uh, I, I'm aware that that stuff does go on, but you know, I'm afraid I'm maybe just living in a in a gilded cage, and uh, maybe I've just been a lucky guy. But my experiences are such that I, I feel, you know, I feel I'm part of an honourable profession. Um, can, can I ask you? You uh, not only have had a very successful music career, but but um, you've also been entrepreneurial, set up your business, the salmon farming business. How, how did that come about? And how different was it running that sort of business to running the music business? Were there, were there things you could transfer across, things you knew? Um, not really, no. It was, I mean, first of all, the science and the husbandry of marine aquaculture appealed to me because I have that sort of a mind. You know, I, I like to learn stuff. I like to read books. I like to, you know, find out how to do things. And, and because it was an emerging new industry, there was, there was not very much um, that you could draw upon. It was, to some extent, fly by the seat of your pants and try and grab a little information from competitors or from, usually not from consultants who were people who very often were a couple of years or more behind in terms of the evolving science and husbandry. But um, I didn't have a good experience of working with uh, consultants on two occasions. It was much easier to, to um, um, learn by politely asking people who were at a larger scale of operation and politely try to learn from some of their mistakes as well as their successes. But we, 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 um, we got going on that in starting in 1978 and um, I did that for 20 years until um, think things were changing as I felt that they would do and uh, I didn't really want to be part of a an industry that was uh, going to be increasingly under question for its uh, good practices for its environmental pollution and, and particularly 
in my case, the main reason I got out of it was because of the sourcing of feed. At that point, salmon would only eat uh, fish protein diets. And that meant plundering the oceans for factory fish, as they would be described, which are part of a, an eco chain that we can't afford to lose. So it was really on environmental grounds that I felt it was something I didn't want to pursue. I mean, 20 years is a long time to be in the game. And um, from a standing start and one employee, um, you know, we, we ended up employing 400 people, having seven farm sites and three processing plants yeah. and being one of the main suppliers of smoked salmon to the, the major supermarkets. So, you know, I felt I kind of did okay. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't something that I ultimately was enjoying because I really did have to hand the reins to other people. Yeah. And I've always been keen to try and promote people, you know, upwards rather than take in ready formed high mm. flyers. And um, I would have to say that um, some of the people that I gave the opportunities to were not up to the task. And, um, you know, I think it, it made for a tense and uncomfortable um, relationships and financially, you know, it was, you yeah. know, we were very susceptible. I had no money behind me. It was just, just me. You're going, and, you yeah. know, if you're running a 20 million pound business, it's, um, you know, 20, 20 million pound turnover business, uh, a million pounds profit could become a million pounds loss yeah. like that. Yeah. The reasons that you couldn't control in animal husbandry and, uh, and through feed prices, through sale prices, yeah. Um, so it was a little stressful and, uh, I really didn't want to spend my days working in an office in Inverness, running the thing properly. I had to leave it to other people by and large. And I was the chairman and hundred percent shareholder. Oh, I had all, all the, uh, all the, um, responsibilities, but, um, none of what might've been fun if it had been my one and only job, but I never wanted to give up music. So mm. it was very much, uh, something I did in the time that was left over. I think I spent probably thousands of hours bobbing around in inflatable dinghies with echo sounders and water samplers in various <laughs> lochs and rivers and, and the sea in Scotland. So I, I'm, you know, I, I, got, I got my feet wet at least. Sounds, sounds some fun at least. Um, could I just go back to the music side of things then? Um, how much of your musical abilities do you think was natural talent and how much was, was learned skills? Well, I, I, it's a very difficult question to answer because if I, I, I couldn't tell you how much I would have pr progressed if I had no talent and had applied myself with dedication to being taught musically in the conventional way. I equally um, can't really tell you if I would have had success if I hadn't tried to learn at least the essence of music and, the, and how it works and how recording works as a process. Um, so the two things for me were side by side from 1968 onwards. You know, I was trying to uh, trying to find a balance between whatever bit of odd talent I might have possessed for music, since it didn't seem to run in the family. Um, then, uh, I mean, I, I I don't have a way of um, making of putting the, the the detail into answering that question. It's just you know I. At the end of the day, you know, it's, you try things, you see what happens. Some things work, some things don't, and and um, you know, you learn by your mistakes, and you uh, accept that you're never going to write the perfect song or perfect piece of music, or um, it's always going to be a something you're working towards an elusive goal. How how, how did you um, uh, learn the flute? Because that was something you picked up in later. It wasn't a kind of school instrument, was it? Yeah, I was. I think I was. I was just twenty years old. I, I think I bought the flute in or uh, within a couple of weeks of my twentieth birthday. Um, so I think it was um, at a point where I was still playing guitar, but we got a guitar player in the band in Blackpool at that point, and I was notionally the singer. And I, I've never felt myself to be a competent singer in the, you know, in the compared to others in, in amongst my notable peers. I, I'm not a. It's not my. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like my forte. I'm not a natural singer. And um, 
it's always required a bit more effort perhaps because I don't tend to sing in the shower or if I walk on a stage I sing because I, I have to and I'm getting paid for it but I don't I don't I don't I don't do it for fun I'm not one of those people who wander around you know singing um and certainly not singing other people's songs which I've never been comfortable at doing I've always been totally embarrassed at trying to sing other people's songs which is why I became a songwriter so um the flute came about because I decided I wasn't playing the guitar anymore in a 1960s Fender Stratocaster um, that, uh, apart from being mine, before before me, it was played by uh, Lemmy Kilmister, of, uh, then of the rocking Reverend Black and the Rocking Vickers. He was the rhythm guitarist back then. And later, later Lemmy of um, Motorhead. Fame. Yes, indeed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's how that uh, came about. And... Um, uh, by the way, why, why the flute? Why, why did you move to the flute? Was, was, it, was it to try and stand out or was it you, you felt it was the tone of a flute was important? Uh, it was the fact that it was, well, when I was tr- trying to sell my guitar, which I mean, probably worth thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 today, at least, <laughs> um, because of its vintage, um, I, I, I was only able to part exchange it, and um, and so that was really um, uh, look around the, the the music store and what could I what what would the, the proprietor of the the music shop give me in exchange? And I, I ended up with a Shure Unidyne three microphone made in Chicago, USA, uh, which seemed like a proper professional microphone, and. Um, and for no particularly good reason, other than the sun was shining through a usually rainy day in Lytham St. Anne's, it sparkled on an object hanging on the wall, which was a student flute. And I said, I'll have that. So 30 quid for the flute, 30 quid for the mic, 60 pounds in total for a guitar that, you know, if I'd kept it would have been, you know, worth... Um, uh, a bob or two. <laughs> well, yeah, as I say, Probably around twenty five, thirty thousand US dollars. Uh, apart, apart from its provenance, yeah. So, um, yeah, it just it might, it might just seem like a really bad deal, but I, I took the pragmatic view that you know the microphone and the flute might earn me more money than uh, than uh, than uh, anything I lost on the deal on my strat. So I I was um, I was quite happy to to to, uh, to to make that deal, and unfortunately, I couldn't make. Couldn't get a note out of the flute. It wasn't until December of of um, 1967, I think, I managed to get a few notes. And in January of 68, when Jethro Tull became Jethro Tull, I was playing in a few pieces on stage and uh, caught the attention, I suppose, of um, the early followers of the band, since um, there weren't too many people playing the flute at that point in, uh, in contemporary music. You became really well known for playing the flute, standing on one leg. You wore very theatrical clothes. How important was the look to you, and and how did you arrive at it? Was it? Did you wear those things normally, or or were they? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, I wonder if Slade wore the ridiculous <laughs> outfits on the you know on a Sunday morning to read the Sunday newspapers. I, I have no idea. I suspect not, but. Um, in my case, it was really that it evolved out of something which was when I um, left Blackpool in the late November, I think, in uh, 1967 to go and have a go at trying to make a living, uh, move down to Luton. It was at that point that my father, we were fairly estranged. You know, we had, you know, really didn't speak. He really disapproved of what I was doing and... and um, uh, he threw at me a an old curling blazer his when he was in the Scottish curling team. They had a you know uniform blazer with a badge on it. Threw that at me, and, he, and then he, as an afterthought, threw this big old heavy woolen grey, dark grey overcoat. So it's going to be a cold winter. You're going to need that. And boy, was he right because it was one of the coldest winters on record in '47. And um, and it was, uh, I, I wore that overcoat in bed every night because it was so cold. And I wore it if I went out because it was so cold. And I wore it on stage because I was cold and I couldn't 
not really afford food, so I was tending, uh, you know, to feel the chills. And so it was my constant companion, and it became all the way through that first year. I, I wore the overcoat, come rain or shine, <laughs> and it became a sort of a trademark. And um, you know, people noticed about Jethro Tull. You know, things that made us different to the other blues bands at the time was there was this bloke in a big dark overcoat and everybody's pouring with sweat in the marquee club I'm wearing my big overcoat and carrying my instruments in a carrier bag and playing the flute and um and um you know that sort of set set us apart and so I took that with me all the way through and until in fact it was stolen from a, a dressing room in uh, I think in Detroit at the Grandy Ballroom in uh, early 1969 and so I replaced it with another overcoat, this time made by um, uh, a theatrical costumier in Shaftesbury Avenue. And, um, and then another one followed that, another one followed that, and, uh, and another one followed that, in fact. So there were, there were four or five different kind of styles of large coat, but they, they became increasingly less functional and funky and more colourful, elaborate. And, you know, I ended up having things made by the, uh, the costume of the Royal Ballet. And, um, and you know, it, it was sort of tongue-in-cheek, but... Um, it was designed to stand getting, out. Being a little bit silly by the mid-70s. But it was designed to stand out. It was, it was, it was pulling attention on, on, to the Yeah, on, on the basis that everything you did on a rock stage at that time, if you were playing in Madison Square Garden, you were these tiny little dots in the distance. There was no video screen or anything. And so, you know, if you wanted to be visible um, and make any impression, you had to be larger than life in terms of your personality. And, and you had to be kind of looking sharp in the sense of uh, um, wearing clothes that other people were not wearing. You know, so, uh, you know, we tended to, all the band, not just me, tended to overdress a little bit in a theatrical kind of a way. But, uh, you know, of course, video screens did come along and it really didn't matter so much anymore. And um, it, indeed, today, you probably wouldn't want to see the gusset seam in my tights at close range on a video camera <laughs> it's all right if you're far away you can't see them you can't see the nasty bits yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you do a lot of planning for your performance do you, do you plan what you're going to say on stage and you plan, the, you plan you plan the essence of it but most of it just evolves and continues to evolve and when you have a complete turnaround with a, a whole new show a whole new set of music then of course there's going to be a few days of rehearsal and working through things and probably a couple of days when you work with a monitor engineer and the front of house sound engineer and the lighting guy, and you've got to bring all these things together because you're working with, with, uh, with video and, uh, you know, a lot of click tracks and cues that are coming through our in-ears on stage so we can know what's going on. But, um, you know, when you have to be in sync with, with picture, you know, you you have to play with a click track and, uh, or you, or you, or you mime, which of course does happen uh, to this day. But uh, no, we, we we play live on stage, but we we obviously have to stay in time with with video things that are happening, you know, and cues uh, that are absolutely bang, and um, and so a lot of that goes on in a production show, and uh, that requires a lot more preparation within that framework. You know, you're still improvising a lot. You know, people are changing their part slightly every night you know and it, it's, it's never exactly the same you're always there's a room of of uh, you know the flexibility to to give you a bit of breathing space within a framework is kind of how it how it works i heard i listened on another podcast that you did where you were talking about using dropbox as a way of kind of tour managing people so you'd put in parts that they had to learn on mp3s and then through to itineraries and flight reservations that sort of thing would you just talk a little bit about how you organize um a tour in that way it's easier for me to do tour itineraries for example than give it to, to a tour manager or god help us a travel agent to organize because they'll screw up they, they, they don't know about life on the road they, they don't know i mean they're, they're only going to book you in the most expensive hotel they can find that's probably you know 
two hours in in uh, in rush hour traffic from there to the venue and it's just stuff that i can do without you know so i i decide on on uh on, you know on flight schedules i book the flight because by the time i've researched the flights and you know got the best deal then i might as well press the button and pay for them and the guys just pick up their booking reference numbers and print out their boarding passes and i see them on the plane you know it's um you know if you treat me if you treat musicians like sheep they become sheep Hence, tour managers as such, for me, are just a, an expensive um, complication because they're not going to do it the way I would do it. And if I have to explain to them every time how to do it, I might as well just do it myself. It's, these days, it's that much faster. So, you know, I'm not a travel agent, I think, for more than 20 years. And uh, I occasionally use one in the USA to book hotels, but I tell her which hotels to book. And she gets a little bit of travel agent discount and does the donkey work and uh, so um but she's a, she does it she's a fan actually rather than a I mean, she's a, as a professional travel agent but you know the, the reason she does it is um you know gives her a feeling of involvement and i i um, tend to do it that way so you know all of these things are just born out of you know practical shortcuts really to how to get the job done with as least stress as possible you know I've, I've always i've always been more stressed when i don't know what's going on if i know what's going on i can handle it i can you know make a few cursing uh, um, profanities um in front of my wife probably because we share an office but you know i i calm down i get on with it i get it sorted out and then i'm not stressed so i i, I really i always feel that it's most important to try and conduct things in the way that ultimately is easiest, easiest on the, the body and easiest on the mind, you know, that you don't, um, and, and I, I, I just find knowing about things much less stressful than, than not knowing and getting worried about how other people are going to handle that on my behalf. So um, that's my principle really in life. It's not that I'm a control freak, but if you were watching me from the outside, you would say, oh, of course he's a control freak. How, how else can you describe it? But, you know, in, in reality, I'm just, uh, just someone who likes to get on with the job, really. If you could get into a time machine and go back in time, do something differently in your music career, would there be anything you'd change? Uh, well, obviously, there are lots of things I could look back on and say that was, that was a dumb thing to do. Um, and not do it again but uh you know those are sometimes tiny tiny little things you know rather than enormously big ones but they're, they're nonetheless you know things that i felt at the time you know were really bad moves but um i don't think uh, i don't think i would change uh, you know it's, it's, a, it's a bit like things evolve things develop and there's a certain sense of kismet of destiny in the sense of letting things evolve in a natural way and feeling that you get to where you're going. And um, if you haven't screwed up too badly, there's a, you know, there's a good sort of good feeling about having got there under your own steam. And I, I rather think that that applies to life in general. Um, I mean, I've been a, a sort of an occasional student of world religion since I was a, an early teenager, questioning initially, um, Church of England Christianity and then Catholicism and um, and I've, I've continued all the way through my life to to read to try and draw upon uh, from different religious beliefs and religious philosophies. It's something that um, it's important for me to do, but I, I am not uh, when when anybody challenges me because I, I work part-time for the Church of England and indeed the, the Catholic world too, doing um, fundraising concerts in cathedrals and churches in Europe as well as the UK, um, which are, you know, there to help the, not so much the religion, but the building. Um, primarily I'm doing it there to try and keep the roof on, you know, and um, or repair earthquake damage in, you know, some little church in Italy, whatever it might be. So, you know, I, I do that and I, I feel quite good about doing it. And, um, but it's, uh, people sometimes assume that I must be a, you know, true blue believer, a Christian, uh, 
amount of Christian faith, and I, I do not have faith. As I, as I try to tell people, I, I, I don't do faith. Faith uh, implies certainty, and I can't, I can't accept certainty in religious belief. I can only accept possibilities and probabilities. And so the convenient way would be to describe me as an, an, as an agnostic, and on a scale of zero to 10, I'm probably about a seven in terms of tending towards a belief in, uh, in a supernatural godhead. I choose those words, words very carefully because supernatural, beyond nature, beyond something we can understand. In that way, I have a great deal of sympathy for Islam because the God that you, why attempt to personalize God and make him a, in the image of man? Uh, God is something we, we can't fathom, we can't understand. It's beyond us, it's beyond, probably forever beyond science to understand. So it's, um, it's about a, a mixture of gut feeling and then cold analytical probabilities. And um, I, I tend to go towards a belief of at least part reincarnation. And I go towards, by, by which I mean, I don't think we come back as a, you know, 100% the person that we choose to or are involuntary reborn as, sorry, involuntarily born as. I think it's more of a, I think out there the spirit of what we are will infuse itself. I recently had a cat who died, very dear cat. He was five years old. He had incurable heart disease. He died just before Christmas. And three months later, we, we got a new kitten. And from the moment that kitten walked in into the bedroom, and I got him home, took him upstairs in a cat basket from a, an Asian household in Smethwick, little trembling ball of fur. And I put him down in the bedroom and he looked around, he jumped on the bed, went straight between the pillows and curled up exactly where Samir used to sleep. Oh, wow. And almost everything that this cat does is, it's like Samir has come back. I know part of that's wishful thinking. I know part of it is the way in which we have shaped that cat's early months. He's six months old now. We, we've probably imprinted upon him a certain bunch of things, but some of them are just too spooky, you know, to, to, to see him do something, you think, holy shit. You know, the first time I found him mm. up the back stairs in Sam's basket, but nobody else slept, just everybody, all the other animals hated Sam Mir. <laughs> and, I, and I found him asleep up there just smiling at me. And it was one of those things where you just thought, it's Sam is back, or at least in... I think this kitten has its own personality, especially now it's beyond that formative first three or four months of being with us. It's, uh, it's developing its own personality to some degree, but um, I, I, would, I would have to say it reinforces my belief in at least part reincarnation. I think that the spirit of who and what we are, animals and people, I do think tends to, you know, I think it moves on, inhabits another earthly corpus. But that is a, not something that I'm going to proclaim as a spiritual belief. I, I'm just thinking it through and thinking, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. You know? mm. so it's kind of in there in the, in the mid-probable range. Uh, that's, that's, that's me. Sitting on the fence, as I do in many, many aspects of life. <laughs> I'm a fence-sitter, professional fence-sitter. I wear grey clothes for the most part because it's not black, it's not white, it's definitely not colour. So <laughs> I am, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a Marks and Spencer grey person who sits on the fence. Last question. If you had a big billboard in the middle of Times Square or Piccadilly Circus and to put one piece of advice on for, for up-and-coming musicians... Um, oh, it's always going to be the same old one. The one that I learned by rote when I was a beginner was don't give up your day job. You know, in other words, and I've said this to many young musicians, uh, have a plan B and have a plan C. Because, you know, to, to, to aspire to being a professional working musician is a, is a great thing. But you've got to accept that the chances are, even regardless of how talented you might be, the chances of success are relatively low. So have a plan B and have a plan C. And that, that probably means having, if not a day job, it means having a, an easy recourse to another professional alternative future. Just as I, you know, as I said, I, when I started in music, I thought, well, I can go back, finish off art college and be a teacher, or I could, I could you know, I could apply to join the police force again, or I could, you know, or more likely I could be in a record company as an executive in some capacity or as a record producer, you know, I, I had 
plan B, C, D, and E, you know, um, when I took that big gamble to try and be a professional musician. But, you know, for a lot of, particularly in the orchestral world, it's a big gamble because you spend perhaps much of your childhood learning to play an instrument and aspiring to be a, a member of the ever-dwindling orchestral community as orchestras fall away like, you know, ailing flies as winter approaches. They, 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 but, you know, the opportunities just aren't there. So a young professional flute player is going to have to accept probably going to end up playing weddings, funerals, and, um, you know, maybe on a cruise ship. Uh, chances of being a, a top-flight orchestral performer are really, really, really very slim. So my, my advice, in other words, is don't give up the day job, or at least don't give up, don't give up the options. Have, have, have the plan, plan B, plan C. And it's going to be an awfully big billboard. You seem to try, you know, give things a go, jump in and try things and learn things. And you, that probably requires quite a great deal of confidence. Is, is that something you've always had? or What, what do you think drives oh, No, I, no I, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm not. It's not that I'm not confident, I, I, but I don't feel that I am. certainly don't have a gung-ho attitude towards it. I mean, anything I have a go at, I've got an escape route. I've got a way, way out to either save face or just make sure that as few people as possible see my my failure but you know of course when you walk on a stage or when you make a record you know you're, you're going to get pot shots um taken at you by those who enjoy doing that sort of thing yeah, even more now than ever before of course in the world of social media so um you know i know that our next album uh which i completed a few weeks ago and did a deal on a couple of weeks ago and delivered all the the masters we're just finishing off the artwork for the various package uh um, alternatives and but I know when it gets out there I mean it's going to get hammered you know I am going to get hammered why so it's just uh, something I I kind of accept but it's why, why would it get hammered well partly because of the material and partly because of I mean not not so much musically just lyrically and conceptually it's going to piss off a lot of people it will bore a lot of people it will upset others and it, just generally speaking, it's not that it's controversial so much. It's, it's observational, like most of my songwriting is. I'm not singing my own emotions or views about things. I'm, and I'm, I'm an observer. But it's just the topics and the material will, will bother a lot of people, make them uncomfortable. And um, I can only say, well, you know, like I did with the Aqualung album, you know, I took a chance when I did the liner notes for the Aqualung album. That was going to ruffle feathers, which, of course, it did. But back then, there were not quite as many firearms in the United States of America as there are today. And so I didn't get killed, although people did burn the records and there were a few death threats, but um, yeah. got away with it. And, um, and in other countries like Italy and Spain, you know, staunch Catholic countries, and um, uh, Jethro Tull came to fame, uh, really, on the back of uh, the Aqualung album and its apparent stance in three songs uh, on organized religion. But, um, you know, again, I was singing less about my personal views at the time, more, it was, you know, more observational, um, seeing things and seeing them perhaps through the eyes of other people in many cases. But, you know, I, I'm well aware that people will get a bit bent out of shape and, um, it's uh, reinforced, of course, by social media because someone's interpretation of what I am writing about will then get plastered across a whole range of formats and people will come to believe that and rather than say, well, hang on a minute, maybe I should read what he's written about it or listen to the music, <laughs> read the lyrics myself. You know, they'll, they'll base their, their, their response uh, on stuff that they've read, usually people who are already got, got an axe to grind or are perhaps a little intellectually challenged, should we say? <laughs> yeah, everything's just abbreviated, isn't it, into headlines, really. And then um, everybody comes with an agenda and everybody seems to shout, or at least... I'm a headline guy. I, I, th I think you start off with... It's like starting off with a visual image for something and then you work backwards from there into a song and the lyrics and the detail. But, you know, it's that kind of first thing you see in my case because i write very often with visual images at the, at the core of the 
this, this, this subject. Um, you know, from painting and photography, it's a picture that I, that I see in my head, and then I turn that into music. And um, but I'm, you know, I'm a headline guy in the sense that I think, you know, when you have something, whether it's a song or a uh, or an album cover or something, you know, you start off and you, you've got to then work backwards. How do how do I how do I then put the flesh on this this the skeleton that is, you know, big and bold and um, I, I think. You know, I fully understand and appreciate the idea of the um, the facade being, you know, punchy and powerful as a means of getting people's attention. I mean, when I wrote a song many years ago called Too Old to Rock and Roll, Too Young to Die, I mean, I, I was fully aware that I was going to get, you know, the, the, the endless questions to this day. Well, tell me, Ian, are you really too old to rock and roll? And you know, I mean, of course, I knew that was going to happen. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, a cheerful, in jest gauntlet that is thrown down in an interview. I, I don't mind. It's, it's a, it doesn't bother me any more than you know. Why do you stand on one leg, blue, blue? I mean, it's stuff you, you know, at the time. It's you're going to live with that for the rest of your life. But I, I accept it. I don't get bent out of shape when people ask the same questions over and over again. I just try and answer them maybe in a slightly different way according to circumstance but it's something you have to accept and i think that's part of the fun of of um you know coming up with the headline you know the song title the album title you know aqualung I mean, <laughs> apart from a threatened lawsuit by the aqualung corporation of north america because i in the innocence i thought it was a generic name for underwater scuba diving gear without realizing it was a registered copyrighted trade name <laughs> But it got people's attention. <laughs> Thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, uh, good to talk to you. And uh, take care. Thanks a lot, and really appreciate you taking the time.